This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back on Thursday. Thank you for joining me today. It's back to school in most districts across the province, although Toronto public and Catholic students will go back a week from today. Parents continue to receive reassurance from Education Minister Stephen Lecce that Ontario's back-to-school plan is the best in the country. He certainly sounds convincing, but there are still many critics who say the physical distancing rules that apply to the rest of the province should apply to the elementary school classrooms as well. At the same time, we've learned that the past two days have shown COVID-19 numbers getting close to 200, 194 Sunday and 185 for Labor Day Monday. And even before these numbers were released, Canada's chief public health officer was expressing concern that the virus numbers across the country have risen 25 percent over the last week. Our strategy panelists are with us now to discuss all of the issues as they are every Tuesday on the phone. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Hello, all. Hi, Jane. Hello, Jane. Hey, Jane. So you all have family members going back to school. Karen, I understand it was busy at your home this morning. <laughs> it was. It was getting lunches ready, getting everyone out the door, getting them to school. But it was, uh, for my daughter particularly, it's been uh, a good thing for her to go back because she did. Uh, she it found it very difficult to be in quarantine. And the last couple of months have been very, very difficult for her. What ages are your kids? My daughter is almost 14. My son is 16. Oh, so they're both in high school then? Yep. Yes. Nine and 11. And uh, what about you, Charles? Uh, my kids are both within the Toronto District School Board system, so they will go back next m- next week, right. Monday and Wednesday, respectively. And John? Well, I have uh, an 18-year-old daughter and uh, also within the Toronto District School Board area, and um, she's going to be doing it online. Um, but I, I must say, though, I think that, that, you know, the anxiety of all this uh, is, is quite palpable for, for everybody. And I could uh, relate to, uh, to Karen about sort of almost going back to normal, sort of, you know, first day back, not knowing, of course, that COVID is, is out there still. So what Minister Lecce has been saying, Stephen Lecce has been saying, is affecting you um, as professionals who analyze uh, the, the strategic uh, messaging and what he has to say, as well as as being parents. Uh, what do you think about his presentation of the back-to-school plan? Is it spin? Is it for real? Is it effective? Is it safe? Uh, Karen, I'll start with you. You know, I think that the government, um, it came out with a plan. It didn't actually come out with a plan. It came out with a statement that schools would reopen. And there's been a lot of scrambling to put the plan in place to make it happen. And, and I, did, I, I do believe that along the way the government lost the narrative on keeping schools safe. And uh, the teachers' union stepped in and took over that narrative. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that um, there was, you know, recognizing the need to get kids back to school was so important for so many reasons, but 
how that was communicated and, and the, 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 the plan that evolved, I think, did create confusion for parents and educators, which caused, um, I think, some anxiety that maybe didn't need to be, people didn't need to be as anxious if there had been actually a, a, a plan before just the announcement. Right. And if everybody was sending the same message, Correct. depending on which side of the political spectrum they're on, uh, what do you think about that, Charles? I, I would agree with Karen. I mean, the, the flow of information has been haphazard from time to time. Uh, there's been uh, a big, big changes in the landscape as to how schools were going to reopen. Uh, teachers, principals, parents were kept largely in the dark. Um, now, I, I have to cut the government a little bit of slack here because, I mean, the, the situation is, is, is a fluid one. It's a, it's a tricky one. Some degree of flexibility would be required. Uh, but over uh, just the last couple of weeks, we've seen 47 schools in Quebec that have seen COVID outbreaks uh, between August 26th and September 3rd. And, you know, there is every reason to expect that we could we could be looking at a very similar, if not worse, scenario in Ontario schools. Add to add to that the fund that we've had 375 new cases in Ontario over the last 48 hours, 108 in Toronto, 105 in Peel region. So that's suggesting that we're seeing community spread in um, areas where population density is uh, is fairly intense and testing is still not where it needs to be six months into the pandemic. We're barely topping 20,000 20, tests a day. We need, for purposes of tracing, and, and uh, we need to be at over 40, we need to be at over 30,000 per day, and we're just not there yet. It's been, it's just been a perennial struggle. John, what about you in terms of how the message has been communicated? I mean, I have to give Stephen Lecce credit. He speaks incredibly well, and his his message, I do find it reassuring, but, it, it, but you also know that he's a government minister, and he is touting what the PCs uh, are, are planning or not planning. Uh, so in terms of how parents should feel with his message, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not there yet with the uh, with Charles's doom and gloom uh, portrayal of how things going. There's no question that there still remains challenges, and and you know I think that that testing is is increasing as much as they can, and and we're doing as as, as well as we possibly can be uh, as as a province, as a jurisdiction, but certainly as a country, I think we've we've fared considerably well because of uh, in large part because of the the teamwork that has been going on and the uh, the cross jurisdictional and cross all political, you know, cooperation that's been going on. So I think that from that perspective, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that things are, are going well. Uh, as for school, look, you know, there's no question that, that it remains a fluid situation. And, and the, the minister had to deal with an overwhelming response from parents who wanted their kids back to school and wanted some normalcy for them, uh, not only for those parents who can go back to work, but also for, for kids who are, uh, as Karen was saying, we're just getting, we're struggling with, with the COVID and being isolated and, and having some level of normalcy and going back to school and seeing kids and, and I think is, is smart and it's good and it's healthy. That said, the premier's always made a note of saying, look, we're, we don't know what we don't know. 
He's gone by every um, rule that, that the health authorities have given him with respect to schools and how to deal with it and how to, how to approach it. They've, got, they've spent a lot of money making sure that there's a lot of PPEs, that there's a lot of resources that the teachers and schools have. And the problem, I think, from the very beginning, Jane, has always been that you've had the unions who, from the very beginning, they just not want, did not want kids to go back to school. And they had an issue with it. They never liked the fact that the premier and, and the minister of education said early on that we're going to get kids back to school. They've been fighting it. Uh, and, you know, I always say, look, let's look, look back to, to March and April, the height of the pandemic, when no one knew anything about this virus and how bad it was going to be and where we were, where we were going to go back then. And grocery stores and other you know, essential services, you know, leaned in and, and sort of, you know, played it by ear and, and went and did what they could to make sure things went. And we had uh, amazing, you know, stories about how grocery stores were allowing, you know, people to uh, to come in and, and make sure that the, the shelves were stocked and all that kind of stuff. And he's asking the same with teachers. You know, look, we don't know what's going to happen, but if we all play our part and we're safe and we're careful, uh, they're going to be monitoring this on a day-to-day basis. So if something happens, I know that the government will react accordingly. But they've done everything they could by way of trying to follow the uh, health authorities to try to make sure school is back and, and, and some level of normalcy. So I give them credit for that. You know where the disconnect is for me and for a lot of people that I speak with is the class sizes for elementary schools. So Karen, everywhere in the province, they encourage the guidelines lines include two meters of physical distancing between people. That is not the case in the elementary classrooms, and that is the only place in the province where it's allowed and it's part of the rule book that the students can be a meter apart. So that just doesn't connect for a lot of people. Yeah, I think, you know, at some level there's there's two messages, right, that are, that are coming out of the government. One is that um, you need to be two meters apart, um, and if you can't be, then you should wear a mask. And so, you know, then the TDSB uh, made a ruling that all children in classrooms would be wearing a mask. And so then it also, um, you know, again, becomes a function of many, many things. And and there is, you know, the two-meter rule, it it has been amended in other jurisdictions, like Germany, where they've said maybe you don't need two meters in order to to be safe. And so, you know, I, I think that we're not experimenting. We're not trailblazing on getting our kids back to school. We are we're following what other jurisdictions have done, and we actually have quite a bit of information, even more so than many jurisdictions had when they reopened their schools. And so I, I, you know, I don't. I feel very safe sending my kids back to school because they know that they need to wear their masks. They need to wash their hands. They need to, you know. Um, be mindful of the fact that there is a is a pandemic going on, and that if if everyone doesn't do their part, then then things are going to happen. Like schools are going to get shut down again. Mm-hmm. But but I would also say that you know right now an outbreak is one case, and and I and I think at some point we also need to rethink. I mean, if there is a case of COVID but it doesn't transmit in the classroom, that's a success story. Yes, you're right. And, and we don't see it that way. We see it as, 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 as something that we have to now lock everyone down and do something about. But, but the reality is, if there is a case of COVID is not transmitting in the classroom, then we have done everything we have can to keep that classroom safe. Because there is a chance that in the next year, there's going to be a case of COVID in the classroom. But if we're all doing our part, that case is contained. And that should be celebrated as a, a very good strategy.
All of our strategy panelists are parents. I'm a parent as well. My children have since graduated from university, so it's not something I have to think about. But I do have nieces and nephews who are in the Toronto District School Board system. So it affects all of us, even if our children are grown. I just want to ask you, our Zoomer radio listener, if you have children at home, what have you decided to do? Did they go back this morning? And how did you feel as they went off to school? Do you feel like Karen, as if they will be safe because they're smart and they know what to do and you've trained them well and the public health experts have trained all of us well. Uh, I want to hear from you how you're feeling about back to school or if you're a grandparent and you may be concerned about your intergenerational social bubble and how that's affecting your life and your grandkids' lives. It's all up for discussion. 416-360-0740. Toll-free. 1-866-740-4740. Charles, let me ask you this. I noticed a new strategy this morning from Minister Lecce, and I'm sure Premier Doug Ford will echo the same this afternoon. Lecce said that the success or failure of what happens in the schools is directly linked to how the rest of us behave in the greater community. In other words, if we all act responsibly, continue to be vigilant, then that will be reflected in the classrooms. Oh, boy. Um, You know, I've got a nine-year-old son, and and if you look up responsibility in the dictionary, you will not see my son's picture in it. (laughs) Um, It's tough to ask you know, a a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or a five-year-old to do the right thing for the sake of the the greater good. I mean, and and this goes to what I think is one of the the chief concerns of the unions. I disagree fundamentally with John's assertion that the unions did not want kids going back to school. The unions, for all their warts, have made it clear they they want kids going back to the safest possible circumstances. And obviously, if if the government had gotten serious early on about reducing class sizes, then the likelihood of outbreaks would have gone down. It's not a question of if there will be outbreaks. There will be outbreaks. And there was just recently a wedding in Peel Region where they have so far identified 90 confirmed cases from one single gathering over the course of an afternoon and evening. And and this speaks to the virulence of the virus and what we're dealing with. I don't think it's doom and gloom. I think we have to be unbelievably vigilant, especially where our children are concerned, especially where our senior citizens are concerned, because this virus plays for keeps. And we've seen other jurisdictions that have just been ravaged by it. And so the question remains, you know, uh, are... Are our kids going to be safe? And no one knows that at the moment. As much as we like to tell ourselves, yes, they will be safe. Yes, they will be happier in school with all their classmates. That's undeniably true. We will have to be unbelievably vigilant with regards to the potential for the spread of the virus among our children. John, one more comment about back to school, and then we will switch topics and get into some of what Charles was mentioning there with indoor gatherings and outdoor gatherings. Yeah, and, and I listen. I agree with Charles on on the fact that we do need to be vigilant, and we need to continue to be vigilant. And I think that the government's even made mention of that. Like in the, every speech that the minister and the premier 
uh, have been able to make since since they decided to open up schools and, and send kids back to schools have always been to say, look, there's going to be bumps in the road, and we're going to be watching it. The best thing that they can do uh, is ensure that that they've got the the resources, the teachers and school boards have resources available to them in the event that there's an outbreak and how to deal with them and how how to best resolve those issues, and uh, and also to ensure that the parents are being communicated to on a regular basis. But I think that they follow. They're not doing this, you know, blindly. They're doing this, you know, based on other jurisdictions. They're doing this based on health authorities' advice and counsel. Uh, so you can't ask for more. But having said that, there's no question that there might be some cases that that'll, that'll be uh, springing up. Uh, and I think the government are going to be ready to react if that's the case. So I, I do think I feel confident that this government is looking at all of the areas and making sure that if something happens, they'll be able to react quickly. Well, Minister Lecce did say this morning that um, he was asked whether there's a magic number of daily COVID cases that would force the lockdown of schools again. Uh, He obviously didn't respond uh, definitively on that, other than to say that that's something the public health experts would recommend and that the government would follow that advice. So... We can only hope that that will be the case. Uh, We do have a couple of listeners wanting to get in on the discussion. Anna in Mississauga. Hi, you're with Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Go ahead. Um, Hi, my name is Anna, and uh, my daughter teaches grade one, and I'm a grandmother currently looking after the grandchildren, which are going into school. And um, I'm really concerned. My daughter is very stressed. She's a very conscientious teacher. She's had to take everything out of her classroom. Um, so that they can put in desks, which was great. However, you can only fit 15 desks in her classroom to be a meter apart. She has 20 children, so they are not a meter apart. And uh, the other thing is she has a special needs child who is not wearing a mask and who um, has the freedom to wander around the classroom so that you have 19 children that have to sit there and wear masks and in fairly crowded conditions, and you have one child who is allowed to the freedom of the classroom and not to wear a mask. How do you rationalize that for the six-year-old? It's very difficult, even if you are responsible parents and you have taught your children, by example, to wash your hands, etc., and to wear masks. And the other thing is, it's very like, for instance, they told her that um, if she hands out paper, it should sit in the child's desk for 24 hours before she uses it, or else she has to put gloves on every time she hands out paper. These are things that are very, very uh, difficult to maintain with six-year-olds. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you, Anna, and I thank you for calling in. I think we're going to panelists. We're going to hear more of these types of stories over the next week or two as everybody gets back to school. It is not going to be easy, that's for sure. I do want to talk about Dr. Teresa Tam and her messaging about staying vigilant and not to let down our guard collectively, individually and collectively. Uh, is this enough? Karen, do you think this kind of messaging is is ultimately what works? Well, you know, moving forward, you know, the there's, there's always the, the fatigue factor that is, you know, laying claim now that people are just tired of the whole, the whole business. And, you know, we can't really be tired of it, but 
um, we have to recognize that our life has changed and there is, um, there's a new way of living and it means that we have to do things differently. But I also think it would be helpful in terms of the dialogue to understand that most of us are, you know, taking our precautions, doing our things, not going to weddings with 90 people or 100 people. But, you know, and, and so instead of doing a blanket statement around how we need to behave, I, I think it would be helpful to also talk about these are the kinds of activities that are risky. So these are the sorts of things that you should stay away from. And if you're going to engage in them, then you need to follow the following precautions. And, you know, nobody would have thought going to a wedding would be a high-risk event. And so that's why we need to, you know, expose it for what it is. A wedding now is a high-risk event, mm-hmm. um, just like going to the bar, just like singing karaoke. So if you're going to do it, you need to understand, and you need to take extra precautions. Karen, I think in principle, you know, when they when they came up with these guidelines, 50 people are allowed inside at a gathering, 100 outside. Mm-hmm. That's in a perfect world with everybody two meters apart or everybody wearing masks. Yeah. And I, that's simply not happening. No, and I, you know, even, I, and I don't, and at some level, is it reasonable to expect that to happen? You know, the, on the one hand, you could say yes. On the other hand, you can say, but it's not. And so, and people aren't trying to not adhere to the rules. People are just trying to live their life. And so we have to figure out what that balance is and, and to make it really, make people very aware that here's where the risks lie. Because if in Peel Region, 90 people got COVID from one wedding, then that's a different measure of community spread. Do you think, Charles, that the the messaging has to change about these gatherings so that it's more specific about what's expected of individuals when they gather in groups like that? It's a tricky one, Jane, because compliance is is the issue, and there are always. I think the majority of Ontarians are inclined to want to play by the rules and do the right thing, but then you have smaller groups, certain demographics that may be less inclined for whatever reason. And it becomes very, very difficult to um, weed out um, those gatherings that are going to be highly problematic in terms of the spread of the virus. And and it goes to enforcement. I mean, there have been some very high-profile instances of enforcement. And I think that's a very positive message to be sending at the moment, that that this kind of stupid behavior will not be tolerated. John, what about you? How could the messaging be improved so people at gatherings will still physical distance, will still wear masks? Well, I think the government has to continue to, on a daily basis, reinforce the fact that as much as, you know, we're, we're entering into, into the phase three and, and things are opening up. And, uh, and as I said before, I, I overlooked the gardener and the gardener's packed now every morning uh, and then afternoon. So people are getting back to some level of of normalcy, you know, given what it is. But I think the government just has to continue on a day-to-day basis and reinforce the fact that, that we still have to maintain, you know, the, the, uh, the social distancing and the masks. And, and I also give a lot of credit to businesses, both small and large. Uh, you know, there's not one that I've been around over the last little while that doesn't have a sign that says no mask, no entry. Um, so I think that there's things like that that are continuing. But the unfortunate situation with this wedding, I think, you know, the, the, only, the only news coming out of that is that the fact that it's public and the fact that people now know that having gone to a wedding that there was 90 cases of COVID might in itself reinforce the people that, that, you know, doing things like that that are just crazy at a time when this is not by all means done and over with just shows you that just one irresponsible act can cause hardship for everybody. And I think that message 
Uh, and the fact that it's out there and that it's public and people are talking about it like we are, Jane, I think is only good to be able to say to people, to reinforce in, in the people's minds that a wedding or any gathering of that size is as high risk as anything else, notwithstanding the fact that we're opening up. And there's a reason why governments have put a limit to both inside and outside events, because there's still that, that, that you know, the cause and, and the high reality of, of spreading and community spread. So I think those messages are going to continue to happen and should happen daily. We will get back to talking about uh, the next phase of this pandemic with uh, two epidemiologists in the second half of the show. But for now, with my strategy panel, Karen Stintz, Charles Bird, John Capabianco, I want to hear what you all think about the new shadow cabinet named by the new Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. Let's talk about some of the players and your impressions of them and how effective or not you think that they will be in their roles. Uh, Firstly, with a few exceptions, most of the roles have changed from Andrew Scheer's shadow cabinet. Karen, what do you think that says about Aaron O'Toole? Well, I think it was strategically good for Aaron O'Toole to to make a shadow cabinet that reflected his own agenda and his own vision uh, with those who supported his, his leadership bid. And he is putting his, you know, firmly putting his... Uh, name on this uh, official opposition and establishing himself as leader. So I think it was very, uh, very smart strategically and tactically. And I think he's got some really good people in his shadow cabinet that are going to do some good work for him. Let's talk about uh, Charles Calgary MP Michelle Rempel Garner as the health critic, seen as a crucial role, obviously, because we're in a pandemic. Yeah, I think she falls into the category of um, a Pierre Poiliver, which is to say very much an attack dog. There'd been a lot of speculation that if Peter McKay had won the leadership, he likely would have remade the, his front bench a little bit to try to make it give it a little more gravitas, a little more uh, policy heft. Um, I, I think the the deliberate choice of uh, Ms. Rempel and Mr. Polev in such high-profile roles really speaks to the notion that it'll be business as usual, which is to say this government is corrupt and it's going to be attack, 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 which to some extent is you know appropriate for the opposition. But I think, as I've said before, Justin Trudeau's secret weapon is really uh, how much conservatives hate him because it skews their judgment. The other thing I would note, of the 43 people named to the shadow cabinet this morning, only three are from Quebec, which is a real surprise. And I would also note that um, almost 75% are male, and the vast majority of those are white males. And I think this points to what is a long-standing problem for the conservatives, which is lack of diversity. You mentioned Pierre Poliev. He continues on in his role as finance critic. Shannon Stubbs is another name. She's from northern Alberta. She's been named critic for public safety and emergency preparedness. Michael Chong from Windsor, Ontario, is the foreign affairs critic. And O'Toole himself is taking on the critic role of middle-class prosperity. And, John, it's interesting that he would choose to use that terminology because that is really a, a, a Justin Trudeau phrase. <laughs> well, it is, but I think it also just to, to match to match what what the government has put in as their ministry and portfolio. I think that that's the reason why. But I also think that it is actually smart for for Aaron to keep that as his as his critic role, if you so to speak, because I think it's going to be one of those that that it'll be the weaknesses of this government 
over the course of the next little while. But look, Jane, I've been terribly impressed, incredibly impressed with with Aaron O'Toole since he became leader from the from his first speech of, of you know, at 1.30 in the morning when he became leader uh, until now. I think he's made some smart decisions on his leadership team. I thought making Candace Bergen his deputy leader was extremely smart. She's been, ex- she's been just a powerful uh, uh, MP uh, over the course of the last uh, number of, uh, of, of years, uh, certainly under, under Scheer's leadership. Um, but I also think the decisions on the shadow cabinet were smart, putting Andrew Scheer as, as infrastructure and communities uh, we mentioned Michelle Rempel Garner. I think that's hugely smart. She is extremely pro-choice, uh, a huge women's rights advocate. Uh, so any issues of, of that will be dispelled by, by having her as the health critic. Um, and just on and on, I think he's made some really smart decisions. Keeping Pierre Polyev in finance uh, was a no-brainer. He was so effective. It might have gotten under people like Charles's skin uh, because of his effective uh, attacks. But, but by and large, he's been getting media for, uh, for the opposition uh, while the prime minister you know, decided to uh, prorogue this to stop the committee work and the investigation on we. I think it's been, by and large, Pierre and Michael uh, Barrett who have, uh, who have largely put this, uh, kept this in the media and made sure that people in Canadians understood that this we is not over yet and it's still a problem. And what do you think about uh, overlooking Derek Sloan and Carrie Lynn Findlay for the shadow cabinet? Is that sending a message to social conservatives? Well, I, I think it's I think it's appropriate uh, given what Derek Sloan said during the leadership campaign and uh, and Terry Lynn's unfortunate tweets or retweets that she had uh, she had undertaken uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm not surprised by that. I think it's smart, but it also shows too that that you know you've got to keep uh, party discipline and and any move in action that you take as a party member will have ramifications. And if you go offside. Uh, then, uh, then it will cost you. And I think that's, uh, that's the message that was sent. I want to ask you each a final question before we wrap up this week. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, when announcing his shadow cabinet, says the Conservatives will be presenting a plan to put hardworking Canadians first, lead our nation out of this crisis, and rebuild our great country. Does that signal to the three of you, Karen, you first, does that signal a willingness to have an election? Yeah, I think he's positioning himself that the party will be ready if an election is called, but he's been very uh, forthcoming saying he's not looking for an election right now, but if one is called, just to put everyone on notice, that they'll be ready to fight the fight. Charles, your thoughts on that? Oh, he'd be nuts to try to force an election at this point in time. I mean, undoubtedly, the Conservatives will be in a position to vote against the government um, on the confidence vote, which will follow the speech from the throne, which is scheduled for later this month. But I think there's a lot of folks in the opposition who are really, really hoping that um, the NDP are there and there's not an election, because if there is, um, it's, it's entirely possible that given the way the federal government has handled the crisis to date, to way, the way they've softened the economic blow, that um, you would see uh, a very resounding Justin Trudeau victory in the fall. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case next year, though as the economics of of COVID really begin to make themselves known and felt. Well, I think uh, typically, too, uh, John, Canadians, um, they have an appetite perhaps for an election maybe two years into a a minority government mandate, and it hasn't even been a year. 
yeah, generally speaking, Jane, that's about it. Minority governments usually last about 18 months or so. Um, but there's a lot of vulnerabilities that this government is facing, uh, notwithstanding we and, and others, and, and the challenge that they're, they're going to be spending more and more money, but without having a plan on how to get rid of uh, the deficit and the debt. But I do think, though, that there's not going to be an election. I don't believe, I believe the Conservatives will vote against the throne speech. Uh, I believe the NDP will support it. I believe the three Green MPs will likely support it as well, because it'll be very much a green economic plan that the Prime Minister will bring down. The bloc will, uh, will as I said, they will vote against it. Um, I, I think if it wasn't for COVID and the anxiety that parents are facing for now in the next number of weeks, uh, you know, for the month of September to see how things are going, uh, I think there would have been a better talk of, a, of an election, but I do think that just the timing of it now just doesn't seem right for, for anybody to go into an election campaign when, when we're still in the middle of this. And, and quite frankly, parents are still anxious about their kids at school. Mm-hmm. Our fight back strategy panel, always informative and entertaining. Thank you, all three. Thanks, Jane. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.